We are in Revelation 21. Again, ordinarily, um, during the season of Advent before Christmas, when we focus on the coming of Christ, meaning his first coming, but traditionally in the church, it's also been um, a time to look forward to his second coming. And so I am going to plow through the end of the book of Revelation because that's what the end of Revelation is all about, is his return. And uh, especially uh, starting in two weeks. Um, so today we're talking about the New Jerusalem, and I've broken it into two parts, so we're going to do the second part next week. Today we'll do 9 through 14. Let's, uh, let's read this passage together from the Word of God. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and said to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So the format I'm going to follow today in talking about this is to address five questions. Why are the people of God referred to as Jerusalem? Why the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles of the Lamb? Why does the city have a great wall? Why is the church called the Bride of Christ? And finally, why is she or the New Jerusalem so beautiful? Okay, so the first question, why are the people of God referred to as Jerusalem? He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain from which he could see and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now here in this passage, unlike the first part we've covered before, the new Jerusalem has been shortened to just Jerusalem. Still talking about the same city, of course. Why is the saints' glorious home in the new earth referred to as Jerusalem? Well, it obviously has connection with the Jerusalem on earth, but not today's Jerusalem is connected to the Old Testament Jerusalem, the city of God, where God dwelt with his people. You see, Jerusalem was the city where God's presence was located, and his presence was in the temple. In the temple, there was a room 
called the Holy of Holies. And in this room there was kept a large golden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant between two cherubim statues was the mercy seat. And the glory cloud of God himself hovered over the mercy seat. Jerusalem was the city where God's people came from all over the Middle East, all over the Mediterranean area to draw close to God during the festivals that God had set up to offer sacrifices for sins and offer thanksgivings. Sadly, though, Jerusalem didn't live up to its calling. Idolatry kept creeping into their hearts and into their city. And God, in the end, had to deal with them very severely. But the darkest moment of Jerusalem's sad and sordid history was actually in the New Testament. When God finally sent the Messiah, God's people Israel did not welcome him. In fact, when Jesus came to the holy city Jerusalem, he wept over the city as he entered it. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I how often would I have gathered you together, your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are unwilling. Matthew twenty-three, thirty-seven. And of course later it was Jerusalem which crucified our Lord. But Jerusalem is not just a piece of real estate on Mount Zion or the people who lived there. There was a remnant all along of true believers whom God considered to be the true Jerusalem. You see, in the mind of God, the true Jerusalem was the community of those who truly loved him, whether they were blood descendants of Israel or not. So that's the Jerusalem that's being referred to here. It has virtually nothing to do with the modern city. It is the community of true believers through, through the ages, now glorified in their, in their new bodies and purified from all sin and descending down from heaven from God. So, why the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles. Well, in verse 12, it says, the New Jerusalem had twelve gates, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And then in verse 14, it says, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So the tribes are the gates of the New Jerusalem and the apostles are the foundation. So what does that mean? Well let's start with why the gates are identified with the 12 tribes of Israel. I have to go through some background here but I think it's well worth it. On the three, on the east there were three gates, on the north there were three gates, south three gates, west three gates. 
Now we just talked about the idolatry of Israel and Jerusalem. Well, the idolatry got so bad that God blew up the whole land, including Jerusalem and the temple. He raised up the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And the result of it was that the people were scattered and taken, many of them just massacred, but many scattered and others taken into exile. And the city was destroyed. As a result, Israel's people wound up all over the Mediterranean region, even in North Africa. But through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, this is important, through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and I've listed many passages here, God, in the notes, God promised to regather his scattered scattered people and return them to the land again in glorious fashion. Now people assumed that this was going to happen after the exile in Babylon was over. And so when the people began in groups returning to the promised land from Babylon, the problem is that what happened there didn't come close to living up to what God's promises said. Even though there were times when righteousness surged and even though there was a lot less literal idolatry that went on with the people that returned, it still wasn't, was a far cry from what Jeremiah and Ezekiel had promised. And so this shifted the expectation of the people of God to think that the fulfillment of these promises would be realized when the Messiah came. Well, when the Christ finally came, by and large, the Jews rejected him, of course. But when God made it clear that the Gentiles were to be included, and then the Apostle Paul made it clear that Gentiles who came to believe in Christ were actually children of Israel by faith it became clear that the promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel were not going to be fulfilled in the way that people expected it turns out Christian believers are the new Jerusalem and just as they are the new Jerusalem so also they are the new lost tribes of Israel being gathered from the four corners of the earth to Christ. And that's why there's gates on every side opened up for the uh, true tribes of Israel to come streaming into the, the new Jerusalem. Our hymn for all the saints puts it beautifully. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, streams in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. So, and you remember that in the description we read that the gates, the gates were pearls. I think that's coming next week. So if you haven't read, then that's coming. But that is from, from this same chapter. The pearls, the gates were pearl.
Now most of these people who are streaming in, of course, are people that you and I have never met before. But they will be our forever family. And we will meet them all and know them all well someday. The most beautiful and precious people who ever lived. Men and women of whom the world is not worthy. And they'll have amazing testimonies and stories. For every one of them has a life that will sing of God's grace and faithfulness. On that day there will be no more division. No more racism. No more nationalism. No more suspicion. No more elitism. But we will all dwell together in perfect harmony. So why do the foundation stones have the names of the twelve apostles on them? Well, we might have expected that the twelve tribes of Israel would have their names on the foundation because they came first. But the prophets of Israel only predicted the coming of Christ and that often mysteriously. It was the apostles who knew him and touched him and listened to his teaching. They were the eyewitnesses of what he said and what he did. They received then the Spirit to guide them in understanding him. So it is the apostles who became the foundation of the New Jerusalem. The idea of the apostles being the foundation of the New Jerusalem actually is based on Christ being the cornerstone, which is introduced to us in Psalm 118. So, you know, when you built a, a building in the ancient world, you would start with the cornerstone. You'd get a perfect stone, perfectly square, perfectly straight, and you'd put it in perfect place, perfectly level, perfectly the way you want it. And then the whole rest of the building was based off of that. But the next step after the cornerstone was to build the foundation based on that cornerstone. And um, in this analogy, Christ is the perfect cornerstone from which the foundation stones, which are the apostles, were, were aligned. The apostolic foundation was laid in faithful correspondence to the perfect cornerstone. And then the household of faith was built upon the foundation of the apostles with Jesus being the cornerstone. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2, you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And you remember how Jesus says to Peter who really becomes the first apostle when to get really who Jesus was. He says, upon this rock I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18. And I believe that you can see when you go to chapter 18 how the other apostles are become part of that as well. 
The person and message of Jesus. This is the point. The person and message of Jesus. Carried along by the apostles. Is the foundation of the church. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ himself. In, through, and with the apostles. They were the ones who were given the job of of faithfully proclaiming him and teaching him and explaining him to the world. How do we know what to believe about Jesus? From the apostles, from the New Testament, which is from the apostles. How do we know what Jesus means for the church going forward? Again, from the apostles. It's not popes. It's not this denomination or that denomination. It's not the Spirit speaking to us in our hearts. It's not contemporary messages received from someone who claims to be a prophet. It's not this church or that church or this pastor or that pastor. It's the apostles. And all we have of the apostles is in the New Testament. We have their teaching and their testimony in all the books of the New Testament. So we have 12 tribes of Israel as the gates and the 12 apostles of the Lamb as the foundation stones. And But you see here they're part of the same structure. There's not two different existences. So this passage also shows us that there's no separation between the Old Testament people and the New Testament people. We're all one in the New Jerusalem. So why then does this city have a great wall? In verse 12 it says it had a great high wall and it refers to it again in verse 17 which we'll talk about next week. Well in Bible times the most common form of warfare was siege warfare. Big cities were fortified with great walls to protect them from invaders. And these walls were so big that they actually had people living in the walls. They had apartments in the walls, and um, that, and that's what you know. Uh, there's some Bible stories that talk about that. But so in these, they had these giant walls, and the way to get in and out was through the big gates, big strong gates of the city that we opened during the day, and then um, there would be watchmen who were on duty on the walls, keeping an eye out for invading armies or troublemakers headed their way. And if they saw anything that looked like a threat, they would communicate and the gates would be closed so that the city would be protected. But armies were always trying to devise ways to get into the city. You've heard of the story of the Trojan horse. Because they were trying to figure out ways that they could get into the city. But there were more ordinary means as well. They had ladders that they'd put up and climb up to the wall. And of course, if somebody was up there to push their ladder off, that didn't work so well. Um, they had they would make construct great towers as high as the wall. And then they would either have them on wheels 
or they would carry them with a whole bunch, crowd of soldiers and carry them and bring them up to the uh, wall and then men from inside the, from the tower could, could climb in into the city um, they also had uh, a technique which was um, you know when when they weren't being shot at they would bring loads and loads of dirt and build up a ramp that would so they could actually walk right up the hill and get to the top of the eventually get up to the top of the wall and be able to get into the city so uh, this was the uh, the way that the, the, it was the technology struggle that was going on with these many of these wars. Well, in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, when Babylon ruined Jerusalem, obviously the walls of Jerusalem were not sufficient, and the whole city was ruined. And remember, when they returned from exile, one of the first thing they did was get those walls built again under the leadership of Nehemiah. Well, the experience of Israel, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years had been that they were always in danger of attack. They lived a life of being threatened and having enemies on every side. So they experienced a lot of fear and even Jewish people today, you know, in a way that you and I maybe uh, can't appreciate, can tell you about the history of the Jewish people in terms of their being threatened and, and afraid. Um, and, and in 70 AD, of course, just before this revelation was written, um, they, the city of Jerusalem was attacked and many Jews were massacred by the Romans. And you know that the first century Christians were persecuted severely and many of them were killed. Well, a common theme of the prophecies was of, about this return that I referred to earlier was that they would dwell in this day that would come, they would dwell in safety and security when they returned to their own land. And um, of course, ultimately, it, these prophecies point to something eternal and not just something political that was, that was happening on the earth. Um, so here in this vision, there's a high great wall. And in verse 17, it actually tells us that it was 144 cubits high, which is about 216 feet so in the ancient world, you know, the highest walls that we know of are about 40 feet. So this wall is 216 feet. And uh, it's not, I mean, that is a safe wall. That's a substantial wall. It's, and the, so the whole purpose of this is to communicate the fulfillment of these promises that God's people will dwell securely in that new city, in that city that, that they're looking forward to, like Abraham was looking forward to the city. Our heavenly home is going to be secure. So, that's the third question. The fourth question is, why is the church referred to as the bride of Christ? 
Verse 9, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now we've seen this already a couple of times in the book of Revelation, but this is the first time where the church is actually referred to not just as the bride, but as the wife of the Lamb. This is the reason, as we've said before, this is the reason that God actually created marriage. God isn't just using, looking for some analogy that he can use to express his oneness with his people. But he actually created marriage so that we could begin to understand how the two, us and God, can become one with each other. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 when he quotes from Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he concludes, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. That's what that verse is about, even though at the time it looked like it was only about marriage. So he's talking about how a man and a woman become physically one and how that's a picture of how we become one with the Lord spiritually. You can say that see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 chapter 6, I'm sorry. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. There is nothing sexual about our relationship with Christ, of course. But God invented this kind of oneness in marriage to give us a glimpse of the beauty, the intimacy, the power, the ecstasy, and the wonder of our oneness with Christ. It's as if we're engaged to Christ now. But when he returns, we shall be wed and move in together. And the two shall become fully one. And there will be no end to that honeymoon. Because in that new state, we will never get tired of something. And especially, we'll never get tired of him. For, and he will never get tired of us. Delights will never fade. They will never grow old. Familiarity will never breed contempt as it often does here in this earth. We shall grow in our knowledge of God every day and it shall always seem new. And this of course should transform the way that we think of this great day to come. But it should also transform the way that we think about marriage now. For instance, does a person need to be married to be happy? Well, marriage is a wonderful gift of God. But the only thing you really need to be happy in life is to be married to Jesus. But there is something else here. And that I just want to sort of add as a footnote. Um, the wording here of verse 9 and 10 in introducing the bride is almost identical to the wording that is used to introduce 
the harlot, the great harlot in chapter 17, 1 and 3. And I think this is because God wants to draw our attention to these two very contrasting figures. And again, we're back to these two women in the book of, Re- of Revelation that God wants us to see. And uh, the, the, the church, the bride of Christ, and the great harlot Babylon, which is the culture of the world, which is trying to lure people away from Christ. I won't add any more to that. You can read the rest in the notes, but we need to get to the last part. And that is why the New Jerusalem is so beautiful. Verse 11. Having the, it's describing the New Jerusalem. It says, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Now obviously, you know, people back then, they had precious stones like we do and they were even more amazing and marvelous than they are to us because that's all they had. They didn't have laser beams and and um, you know other things that that are created that are that are so fascinating to the human eye. Um, but and this is how God chose then to show how God will see his people in eternity. There'll be no more question as to whether God treasures us or not. No matter how low or unworthy or ashamed a person feels in this life. No matter how lacking in beauty a person thinks he or she is. In that day, each one who is a citizen of the New Jerusalem will glisten with beauty and glory that no one on earth has ever had or seen. No matter how rejected you have been, no matter how little you've been appreciated, no matter how many evil things have been said against you falsely, in that day you'll be so beautiful in the eyes of the Lord that it will make up for more than ten lifetimes of disdain. Listen to Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Now, you should no longer go by the name forsaken. And your land shall no more be called desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You know, in spite of what the world around us tells us, it doesn't really matter how good looking we are in this life. What really matters is that we treasure the beautiful one who is making and will complete the process of making us into his beautiful treasures. It's really not worth our time to fight for approval from people around us. We have all the approval that we'll ever need waiting for us in the arms of our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Lover. And there'll be no one there to make to ruin the moment with a snide remark 
or belittle us or mock the Lamb's affection for us. C.S. Lewis said that our fellow believers will one day be so glorious that if we saw them in that state right now, we would be tempted to worship them. And that says something about each one of us who have faith in Christ. You know, right now, our house is about as big a mess as it's it's worse mess than it's ever been before because we're getting it fixed up to put on the market. And before you improve it, you've got to deprove it. That's not a word I know, but you get the point. And and so it is, you know, so crazy. It, it, last night, our son came in after we were asleep. And of course, there's no door in our bedroom, so we can hear everything. And he was just trying to get stuff off his bed so he could climb to just a little piece of his bed to get on the bed and try to sleep. And of course, after a couple hours, he couldn't sleep, and so he got up and went somewhere else in the house to try to find a little place that he could lie down. But the point is, it's so chaotic and such a mess. But that's the way things are in the present. But we're looking forward, hopefully, Lord willing, toward day when it's going to be presentable. You know, when somebody's going to want to come in and say, hey, this could be a cool place to live. That's the whole concept of what we're doing, right? I want to remind you that in the book of Revelation, one of the most beautiful things I've learned through this whole study is how at the beginning of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, with the letters to the seven churches, we're given a picture of the way the church is now in this age. And you read those seven letters and those churches were so full of problems and, and issues and weaknesses and failings and it was a mess. And then we come to the end of the book of Revelation and we're given this glorious vision of what it will one day be like. And so what an encouragement it is for those who are living in the mess of today. And the church is a mess. And you and I are a mess. To think about where this is going. If, I mean, you know, living in a house where it looked like a bomb went off is not very fun. But when you know it's temporary and you know that this is working towards a day when you're actually going to look around and be pleased and maybe even impressed by what you see. That makes it worthwhile. And so it is in our lives and in God's church. It's a mess today. There's so many things you can point to and say, that's not good. I cut my, I got three stitches in my hand because there's a piece of glass on the ground that I didn't know was there while I was painting. It's just, there. that's the way it is in this life. But when we realize where this is heading, it makes it all worthwhile and we can live in the joy and glory of what we know is, is coming when we follow after Christ. Just as he went through his crucifixion and everything looked like it was going wrong. And yet he knew that there was a joy to come as a result of what he was doing. And 
we will all enjoy it with him in the end. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the, your word, for this glorious vision of, these, of this city, this bride, and how we will be a part of this, Lord. And we look forward to the day when we have new bodies and our sin is removed and our tears are wiped away and we, are, we have no more barriers between us and you and when we can live in the sweetness and in the beauty of being one with you, O oh Lord. So much of this we still cannot grasp, but we praise you for your promises and pray that you would give us strength in the now to keep persevering and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And dear Lord, we thank you for the chance we have at this moment to partake of the the Lord's Supper which you have given us dear Lord to encourage us and we think of the day that we will partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb in glory and we look forward to that day Lord and we thank you for this little hors d'oeuvre that you've given us to strengthen us until it's dinner time and pray that you would indeed Feed us and help us to be strengthened by Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.